0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45
1: up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Hello, listener, and welcome to Jumpers for Goldposts. The sun is rising on a beautiful Parisian morning. The croissants are freshly baked. The coffee is brewed. And Teribo West is putting the finishing touches to his World Cup dreadlocks. That's right, today we're going back to France 98 for the greatest show on earth. Arguably the best World Cup of all time, this one has everything. No shortage of drama, amazing goals, retro kits, and of course, the players. All the stars come out to play for this one. Ronaldo, Zidane, Babeto, Beckham, Baggio, Bierhoff and Batistuta. Try saying that ten times fast. We look at the tournament's top matchups, the players who got big dream moves after France 98, and we have a special World Cup quiz. What are we waiting for? Let's get going. These next two men love football stickers yes they do they love stickers so much that they like to have their panini sticker album by their bed when they sleep their obsession collecting football stickers has reached new heights recently when dan was spotted walking down a supermarket aisle pointing at products shouting got got need they are daniel mcintyre and connor elliott better known as dan and mush the Matchman. dan how are we doing
1: Doing great Stephen Thank you very much For that introduction
0: Are you pumped for For this France 98 review? I've been looking forward To this one It's the
1: f- oh, Lowest I remember World Cup 94 98 is Very very fresh In the head I remember quite a bit of it So really looking forward To delving in To everything
0: about it I just want to give away A look into what life was like in 98 for the recently 11 year old uh, Dan at the start of the tournament it kicked off on the 10th of June we were still in school by the end of the tournament school was out The mm-hmm. summer was in full flow although when you're in school I'm guessing your head was already gone by the time the the tournament had started what was uh, what was the summer of 98 like for a young Dan
1: the summer in it didn't start off too well. I actually tried to buy a Scotland jersey for the World Cup and it wasn't a nice size. And, and the lady in the sports shop convinced me to buy the Holland top, Ooh. which I did. And from then, that day on, I have uh, adopted the Dutch from <laughs> since '98. So, uh So it started off with not getting the jersey that I liked, but ended up... Having a great relationship with the Dutch, and was really looking forward to France '98. My two favourite players at the time would have been um, Ronaldo and Dennis Bergkamp, so I was really, really looking forward to seeing them.
0: Mush, were you allowed to stay up for these late games in France, or was it uh, was your dad telling you get up to bed? Oh yes,
2: personally, hey, the curfew was uh, extended out even for those games that went to extra time. It was the summer. How, how can how can you say no to a boy just looking to watch the beautiful game?
0: Lovely stuff. So, Moshe, I can see you're wearing a fine retro World Cup 98 shirt there. Can you describe what you have got on for our listeners? Yes, Steve, I can. A
2: rich dark navy kit with checkered red and white down the sides. A white collar with a beautiful uh, trim around the side of it. An iconic strip sponsored by Lotto, David's Zucker and Boxage come to mind. The side that wore this, they destroyed Romania, demolished the Germans in it and they finished third at this World Cup. It is Croatia away.
0: Oh, is this an eBay find, Mush, or is this one you've had in your collection for a long time? This is an eBay find, Steve. This was a haggling with a man
2: from the Czech Republic. He wanted a Paborsky top in exchange for it. I conned him off and I got this top instead.
0: Fine piece of haggling going on there. Superb stuff. Dan, as normal, you've got some sort of retro jersey on, um, you made have two on there, can't see, it looks a bit baggy, what have you got <laughs> on for us today?
1: Oh Stephen, uh, very difficult to choose a kit from France 98, absolutely wonderful kits, but today I went for a bright yellow kit with black and green colours with a reggae influence with a lovely black collar, big and beautiful that you could wear up on a cold day when it got past 8pm and you were still playing football. It is a little bit of a taste of the Caribbean. It is the Jamaica home kit for the World Cup 98. And I've chosen this kit today because in 1998, I did not even realise Jamaica had a football team. I only thought they had a bobsleigh team. <laughs> so I went for the Jamaica kit. It's worn by Premier League uh, cult heroes as well: Robbie Earl, Daryl Powell, Frank Own Goal Sinclair, Dion Burton, Marcus Gale, and Ricardo Gardner. So today, I've went for the Jamaica home kit from France '98. It's bold, bright, and it's beautiful, Stephen.
0: It's a lovely strip worn by that great bunch of Championship players who managed to play at the World Cup. Dan, it's such a nice strip. Would you consider getting it in long sleeve?
1: Stephen, I would never consider getting a jersey (laughs) in long sleeve. I've only ever owned one long sleeve jersey. And to this day, I regret that decision.
0: (laughs) Okay, great stuff. So before we delve deep into the tournament, it would be rude not to talk about the teams that probably should have been there, had decent enough qualifying campaigns, may have got to the playoffs, but eventually just came up short or... In some cases, absolutely blew it. Dan, you took a look at the teams that probably should have been in France. Who have we got?
1: Yes, thank you, Stephen. Uh, yes, quite a few upsets on the road to France. Uh, some teams possibly unlucky, some possibly complacent. Just a touch on Africa, Asia and Oceania. No real surprises from Africa with Nigeria, Tunisia, South Africa, Cameroon, Morocco, Saudi Arabia, Japan all qualifying, along with Iran, who luckily... Defeated Terry Venables, good eye mate, Australia, on away goals on aggregate, in a 3-3 draw over two legs. Mexico and USA would be joined by the surprise package, Jamaica.
0: Mush, a very big surprise here, El Tell, actually managing Australia, never mind what actually happened after. Did El Tell just watch a few episodes of Neighbours, see Carl Kennedy and Susan and think, I fancy a bit of that, or do you think he was offered uh, a lucrative deal to go down under?
2: I think a bit of both, Steve. I think he loved watching um, Australian soaps. He also loved the coin. But the main reason he went there was he loved kangaroos. And he actually purchased one and called it Big Carlton Palmer.
0: Ooh, a fine name for
1: a kangaroo. And that is actually true. Uh, In South America... Uh, There was no real upsets in the South America qualification. Brazil automatically qualified back then as holders. The most unlucky team was Norberto Solano's Peru, who missed out on goal difference uh, to a Chile team led by Zamorano and Salas. And it would be the goals from those two players that really decided that goal difference. Zamorano being the top goal scorer in the South American qualifying overall with 12 goals. And behind him, in second place was Salas on 11 goals Closest to them was Colombia's Festino Espria on 7 goals Argentina topped uh, South America overall uh, Winning the table quite comfortably But they had a, a, an array of stars to call up call upon
0: Mush, uh, obviously you're a huge fan of Nobby Nuts, Nobby Solano um, A player you followed very closely Were you gotten to find out That he wouldn't be making his way to France?
2: I was Steve I felt he deserved it he had done a lot for football, a talented player, but he just couldn't carry the whole nation on his back. Uh, as Dano says, Samarano and Salas punished him, and they'd done it in goal difference. Sorry for Nobby, but he still got his nuts intact.
1: And over to Europe, which we would have been most familiar with at the time, and so the, the biggest upset on paper for me was Sweden failing to the qualify. They had came third in the USA. They had Henrik Larsson, Alexanderson, Jasper Blankvist, They had a good, solid team, a good, solid base, and they were pipped by Scotland, um, which on paper would surprise you, but Scotland ended up having a great uh, campaign. Sweden just faltered in the last couple of games, dropping four points in the last three games. So missed out on that. As well as that Czech Republic failed to qualify, who were the finalists of Euro 96, led by Proborski, Patrick Berger, Pavel Nedved. Um, So them missing out was was a shock, although they were pitted by Yugoslavia. So there was a big rivalry there between those two countries and those games would have been heated. Uh, closer to our doorstep, our beloved Republic of Ireland beaten by Belgium in a playoff 3-2. Not so much an upset, but possibly Republic of Ireland should have qualified straight away. As well as that, Rui Costa and Luis Figo's Portugal failed to qualify, um, being pitted by Ukraine, who also later failed to qualify as they were defeated in a playoff. Top scorer in the European qualification scene was Padrik Mijatovic of Real Madrid with 14 goals. He also scored a winning goal in the 1998 Champions League final. So Yugoslavia had a real player on their hands there with him. In the Euro playoffs, Belgium, Croatia, Italy and Yugoslavia managed to qualify with Yugoslavia beating Hungary over the two legs
2: 12-1.
0: <laughs> what, a what
1: a victory that was and certainly sending a message out on their way to France,
0: Hungary mustn't have been hungry
2: enough. Dan,
1: Yugoslavia were absolutely starving.
0: Boys, well, I can remember being in a, a local pub when the Republic were were knocked out by Belgium, and grown men in tears. This wasn't just a team not qualifying for France '98. This was a nation's hopes, as it would have been for a lot of countries. But after the success of of USA '94 and bringing the nation together, this was. Hugely disappointing to not have the Republic of Ireland representing and and really put a damper on things um, locally.
1: I completely agree with that. I think as well, we were would have been expectant. You know, you had Italia 90, we qualified for 94. I just missed out in the playoff to a good Dutch team for Euro 96. So we would have been expecting It was Mick McCarthy's first campaign, but there were still a lot of good players about and he was blending in the youth. I think Roy Keane missed most of the campaign with his cruciate injury, and um, there was one or two problems with uh, Cascarino, Niall Quinn. So they they were kind of missed in terms of focal points. But overall, disappointing. I, you know, Belgium were no great shakes. Probably should have got through, particularly was having one of the games at Lansdowne Road, you know, should have made more of of, of being at home and maybe getting another goal there. So, uh, very disappointing not to to have have them at the World Cup, especially France after USA. Fans didn't have too far to travel and they would have been really, you know, they would have have been making plans to travel to France and and staying there, much like Euro 2016 and having a bit of carnival atmosphere. Yeah.
0: Mosh, um, obviously one of your highlights from USA 94 is the wonderful Swedish ladies that grace the cameraman um, every time they, they panned round. What did you do during France 98 to get your Swedish lady fix?
2: It was the Jamaican women, Steve. Uh, big Bobolons.
0: <laughs> okay, good stuff. So France 98 obviously was a tournament full of stars, but there was a few stars who were left at home for various reasons. Mush, you've had a look at that. Who did not make it to France 98?
2: In at number five is Japan's Kao Mura, an unfamiliar household name, but you may remember him now as he's still the oldest active professional footballer in today's modern game, playing in his 50s. In 1997, he'd scored 18 goals in 19 games to help Japan qualify for the tournament, but the head coach said he didn't know how to use him. That is
1: shocking management. I can't believe a manager, an international manager, cannot make space for a man who scored 18 goals in qualifying for him. There must have been something else to that. Terrible decision.
0: Who's at number four, Mush?
2: Number four, Steve, is Antonio Conte. Juventus captain a leader on and off the pitch, a box-to-box midfielder with nearly every attribute in the book that is required to play for your country. He, he was captain of Juventus that won the Scudetto that season and he led them to the Champions League final. He could play anywhere across the midfield, very disciplined, great mentality, tough cookie to crack, but instead they opted for Luigi Di Baggio. only one f- winner for me, and that would be Conte.
0: Dan, what happened here was Conte having a hair transplant this uh, summer, or was there just too many? <laughs> was there too many good midfielders in this Italian midfield?
1: Oh, I'm I'm really surprised at that. I, I would have assumed he was in the squad. There, that that's that very interesting one because he did go to the '94 World Cup and '96 Euros. I'm surprised at that. I think possibly that he was a little bit too similar um, to maybe Albertini, you know, uh, who was starting. And they didn't bring them both. Just, I don't know, when Agio was younger, they had Dino Baggio on the squad as well. So maybe it was just a case of literally can't
2: take any more Xander midfielders and he was just very unlucky. At number three, Steve, is Romario. Now, this one may be debatable as he was injured, supposedly a muscular injury, which had ruled him out. But Romario had said he was fit at the time of selection and would have loved to play some part of the finals. After being such a massive part of Brazil's success in 1984, probably one of the best strikers in the 90s, a man who put big Brucey to sleep in 1984 at the New Camp, surely Romário could have been used rather than Edmundo. This will lead on to, later on, conspiracy theories.
0: Oh, I look forward to listening to those. I've actually seen the Romário video on YouTube. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's when he actually gets injured. And they hold a press conference and he actually breaks down in tears, like floods of tears. So, a bit hard to then believe that he's declared himself fit. I think so. He
1: would have been desperate to play because he, he was still unbelievable. He yeah. was still a world-class striker, a great finisher. Him and Ronaldo had a brilliant relationship. I don't think Ronaldo quite had the same relationship with uh, Bebeto or Edmond, to be honest. Um, so, uh, Romario was a, a loss to that Brazil squad and... I personally would have took a punt on him If it's a, You know You have a 23 man squad You've always room For a gamble mm-hmm. And could you gamble On Romario being fit For say The quarter finals onwards I'd have, I'd have took him I would have took him But you know They didn't So um Very sad for him
0: Mosh Would you have taken him Or are you still a Badetto Edmondo Backup man no, I, I would back Dan over
2: there. I would have brought him. Even if he was only 30% fit, I would have took him. He definitely could have came off the bench and done something. At number two, Steve, is Paul Gascoigne. No. Now, media didn't help Gaza as they floated images of him eating a kebab with the big breakfast host, Chris Evans, a week before <laughs> the squad was announced. Now, the man had helped them qualify. He was a hero in nearly every English fan's eyes, Euro 96, that goal against the Scots. Granted, he had issues in his personal life, but he had 57 caps and 10 goals for his country. During the season, he was playing for Dano's second favourite club, Middlesbrough, in the old Division 1 and had them
0: gain promotion.
2: (laughs) Personally speaking, I would have brought him into the squad as it's Paul Gascoigne.
0: Mosh, was he here a victim of um, the old, you're not playing for a big club and you're playing in Division 1, which we now know is the Championship. Did Hoddle have a touch of that about him, do you think? Or was it just too big a personality to have on the bench and bring on and maybe a bit disruptive? Uh,
2: There's a few things, Steve, leading to it. One was his personal life, which we all know about. Gaza had a lot of issues. Two, playing in the Championship, maybe. but then. They called up Paul Merson from mm-hmm. the Champions yeah. English squad. Three was Hoddle and Gaza never seen A to A. And Hoddle was out to make a statement, supposedly, when he got the job. And when he announced that Gaza wasn't making the squad, Gaza trashed Glenn Hoddle's hotel room.
0: Dan, if you were in Hoddle's position, would you have taken him or would you have been a steady Eddie and went with the ensign buddy? It's a
1: very similar one to Romario, and again, I have to go back to taking a little bit of a gamble here.
0: You're a gambler, man,
1: in the squad. Gambler, man, when it comes to having a maverick in my squad of twenty three players, you know, body ends. They're going. Doesn't matter about Gaza, Gaza, or who does who doesn't go. They're them two are going. Beckham's going, right? Paul Merson's going, okay. But he brings Rob Lee. He doesn't play at all. Now. He's possibly your fifth choice midfielder there, Rob Lee, but you're not a broad there. And, and just said, to him, Paul, sit down. You're not 100% fit. You're not 100% focused because you're personal. Life, but I'm with you. I'm going to bring you. You're going to be my 23rd man. And if we go to an extra time, or we, we're in the last 20 and we're drawn and we're on top, you're the man that's going to change things for us. But as well, you have to see it from Hoddle's point of view. He basically was afraid of... Taking Gaza to France and the man going well you know?
0: Yeah, which he would have no doubt, but he may have also produced a couple of brilliant moments. So, yeah, it's, ah, uh, we'll never know, lads. We'll never know.
1: We'll never know. It's a tough one. And, you know, we're all Gaza fans and
2: fans of that type of player. It's just very unfortunate.
0: Mosh, who is your number one?
2: My number one, Steve, is Fernando Redondo. Oh, the Argentinian. Deep-line, ball-playing midfielder. Very underrated. He was elegant. As I said, a deep-line playmaker. Great vision. A peach of a left foot. A key part of the Real Madrid team that season, which had won the Champions League. Surely, he could have joined the likes of Simeone and Verón. But there's a bit of a clash here with him and the manager. And the manager stated that his long hair was a reason For him not being included In the squad No If you ask me That's a load of boo hockey Well what about Ballastuda? Well there you go Steve Maybe because he were uh, Tied it up I don't
0: know But Fernando Redondo Did he need a McDonald's hairnet to go to France St. Maybe Or a muscle (laughs) (laughs)
2: That's the strangest reason For leaving a player Out of a squad I've ever heard Sometimes It'll be Rather than the player The person May be excluded So Mm -hmm. The manager and Redondo Clearly clashed Because Mm -hmm. Redondo had represented Argentina At the 94 World Cup Personally speaking I would have brought him I would have just had it out with him Considering the other names That were in the Argentinian squad They had Bertie, Gallard, Estrada Redondo's better than them three put together Yeah So I would, have, I would have busted me hump To get him called up So he's my number one Fernando Redondo I'm very, very
1: surprised That he wasn't pushed To bring Redondo He was a world-class midfielder and he was still better than what even had starting. You know, you could argue he was just as good as Simeone and Veron. So, really, really unlucky. And no surprise that he's the number one shock in, in amongst the squads. Um, yeah, I can't believe that. I can't believe the reasoning. Long hair, you're having a laugh.
0: So, now it's time to delve into how the home nations fared at France 98. We had Scotland and England representing. Mush, I believe you have a special correspondent who's back for us this week.
2: Yes, Stephen, I do. It's my good friend, top journalist, and all-around amazing bloke. It's my friend and yours, Chip Dunleavy. Over to you, Chip.
0: Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back. I've taken my vitamins and said my prayers, brothers, and I am pumped for France 98. I can't talk about your home nations without mentioning mine. After USA 94 and the success of reaching the last 16 before a narrow defeat to eventual winners Brazil, I was hopeful we would win France 98. How wrong was I, man? We played like a bunch of losers. The U.S. got dumped out in the group stages after only notching one goal and a 2-1 defeat to the mighty soccer nation of Iran. I honestly don't know why they didn't send the females to compete. Coach Steve Sampson's tactics absolutely sucked. He should have played both Brad and Casey in goals. So it was bye-bye to the American Eagles, but the Bonnie Scotland and England soccer clubs had a serious chance to represent. The Tartan Army Soccer Club got off to a great start against Brazil. Joan Collins pulled up his kilt and converted a penalty kick in the 38th minute to give the Haggis eating Scots a chance. They eventually lost 2-1 but they held their heads high. They managed to nick a point in the next game against the Vikings to have a chance of qualifying against Morocco. Before the Morocco game Toothless shooter Craig Burley decided to dye his hair blonde at the salon so he could look just like his hero, Colin Hendry. And damn, did he look good. All that bleach must have went to his head, though. Morocco destroyed the Scots 3-0, and Burley was sent off in the 53rd minute. A sad day for the Tartan Army Soccer Club, and the last World Cup appearance for veteran goalie Jim on. He was 54 years old. Now it's over to the England Soccer Club, who were the last remaining hope. Hopes were high going into this one, as the Four Lions managed to win the Wawa the year previous. They got off to a great start against Tunisia. A 2-0 win, picking up two points with goals from Scholes and on-field captain Alan Shearer. They sucked in their next matchup, going down 2-1 to Transylvania, leaving it all to do on matchup three against the crime syndicate, Colombia. Two first quarter goals from sick bag Darren Anderton, and an amazing field goal from Golden Balls himself, it's Beckham, meant England reached the playoffs. Now, their playoff match against Argentina started well. Kindergartner Michael Owen tortured in an aging defense, and scored one of the goals of the decade. They would all go pear-shaped soon after, though, when Golden Balls flicked his foot at Diego Simon, like you would flick a booger at a friend and got a straight red flag. England down to 10. They fought on bravely, but came up short on penalty kicks. Reliable franchise player, David bat missed and sent soccer home, just like the Four Lions fans wanted. Ten brave lions, one dumbass golden ball. I'm only joking, David. I love you, man. And your wife. I have all her music. I'm Chip Dunleavy. It's back to you in the studio, Simon. Bush. Oh,
2: where did you meet Chip again? Yes, Daniel. I met Chip in my local video rental shop when both our hands fought for the last copy of clean trains and automobiles let's just say i got the last copy
0: but he got a friend
1: brilliant what a story it's great to have him on board okay
0: lads the home nations mixed bag great start by scotland they nearly did beat brazil dan
1: they nearly did beat brazil uh brazil were a wee bit off on the day sort of opening game rust and at the time of uh, John Collins' equaliser from the spot, they're actually they're well on top. And they had a good spell in the second half as well. Kevin Gallagher, he, he was getting a bit of joy against the Brazilian back four all the year. Wasn't quite uh, the man he was at centre half. But in, you know, classic Scotland fashion, to score an own goal and lose the game. like <laughs> it's, it's just... <laughs> so know, unlucky. Just look back at the, the history of Scotland at major tournaments and they do so well when they do qualify. And they just have no luck. Really, really no luck at all. Or the other side of it is going down 3-0 to Morocco after giving themselves a fighting chance um, in their second game, drawing one all with a very good Norway team. Um, They had an opportunity against Morocco and they absolutely choked on the night, you know, thumped, thumped really. And um, as Chip says, uh, Jim Layton, a couple of howlers and just a really poor performance and went out kind of flat, flat fashion.
0: Mush, were you a follower of Scotland during this World Cup? Did you did you want to see them well, or were you laughing, laughing from your grave? No,
2: no, Steve. I remember this was the first game of the tournament, and I was cheering the Scots on. Um, I knew they probably weren't going to get anything off the Brazilians, but they had some big characters: uh, John Collins, Colin Hendry, and Co. At the time, Scottish football was um, really well with Celtic and Rangers. They had. Just to attract, especially Rangers, to attracted a lot of good players to come. So I was cheering the Scots on.
0: Good they, stuff. Um, do Do you think, speaking of missing players, uh, Scotland famously Ali McCoist was left at home. Do you think that was a bad decision? Did they miss that sort of target man up front? Yes, Steve.
2: I think they did. Personally, miss Ali McCoist. I know he may have been aging at the time, but he still is a goal scorer. Craig Brown openly admitted after the tournament that it was the wrong decision to not include him in the squad whether or not he would have made a difference I don't know but still I would have brought Big McCoist, as you never know he could have bagged something from the bench even
0: Again Dan you hit the nail in the head it was a hard luck story for Scotland but obviously great to see them qualifying for a tournament um, in yeah. the, the, the upcoming summer so good luck to the Scots Moving on to England, the three lions, not four, Chip, uh, they had a realistic opportunity going into the World Cup after faring pretty well in Euro 96. They're still talking about that. Mush, were you getting carried away uh, like much of the England fans and, and thinking that England could go deep into the tournament, potentially even win it?
2: I thought they could have went deep in the tournament, Steve, but... They never impressed in the group stage and the the same old outcome with them. They just bottled it. I think it went wrong when they played Paul's goals out on the wing, which didn't help. And again, if they would have brought Gaza, could he have changed the game?
0: A wee touch of hard luck here as well for England, Dan. um, Sol Campbell had a goal disallowed, which was a perfectly good goal. Uh, And they fought very well to hang on against a very, very good Argentina team, even with 10 men. Yeah, I'm going to ask you that age-old question: If Beckham doesn't get sent off, are we looking at a completely different game?
1: Without a doubt, I thought Beckham was running the game. He, he forced his way back into Glenn Hoddle's starting lineup and was playing alongside um, Ince in midfield. And it was a Hoddle. He was a good England manager. He's brave. Three four one two or three five two, whatever way you want to call it. You know, freeing up his best players and. I think the squad was strong There were a lot of winners in that squad I thought they were better in Argentina on the night Absolutely robbed with the Sol Campbell goal However, I don't know if they would have went much further than that Um, They would have faced Holland in the quarterfinals, Brazil in the semis And possibly then France in the final. So I don't think they would have won the tournament But I think on the night, overall, they were better in Argentina The 10 men after Beckham was sent off did really, really well to, to change the system a little bit the um, huddle swapped Sheer and Owen in 10 15 minute spells where one of them would go to the right wing and one of them would go up front just to keep his best players on and sort of reshape the team um unlucky on the night but you know once it goes the penalties, you just don't fancy them. you know there's I don't know what was going on with practice I don't know why they didn't have at least eight nine takers lined up. You know, I don't know what happens. I don't know how that doesn't get organised.
0: So but I think Michael Owen famously said that they didn't practice penalties, yeah, and and that, that. he he actually asked Alan Shearer where he should put it, which Man, you it. know, obviously, obviously Michael Owen is a, is a young a young striker at this stage, but mm. quite worrying when you're asking somebody else where I should put a penalty.
1: Very worrying, and Paul Merson has a similar story in his autobiography. He talks about how nervous he was going up to hit, hit his penalty. Now you would be naturally nervous, but. You have to create some sort of environment where you know, you know, we might get a penalty shootout here in the knockout phase. Let's have at least nine takers. So that we are no matter who's on the pitch, we are covered. And well, you know, when Glenn Hoddle's having to go around and asking boys if they fancy it, yeah. Like Paul Instant Batty, who probably didn't really fancy it but just
0: They didn't want believe, to say no. Yeah.
1: Didn't want to say yeah. no. Uh, and ultimately they're they're the two players that
0: missed for them. Was Merson uh, nervous, or was he hanging from the night before and a bit shaky? <laughs> he he, he uh, let's let's face it he didn't re- he didn't think he'd be on the pitch at that stage.
1: No, I don't think he <laughs> thought he would have been on the pitch. Uh, but uh, aye, maybe a bit of both. Who knows? God knows what them boys got up to over there.
0: Oh, good stuff. We will be back with a massive quarter final between Holland Argentina. But first, here is a lovely little goal from Reggae Boy and Wimbledon Crazy Gang member robbie
2: earl jamaica they've got the ball here on the left-hand side that's a red stripe of a cross robbie earl with a power and a goal it's one one big robbie earl has equalized for jamaica the reggae boys have set off a festival of love in the crowd they now have a goal at a world cup to go with the bobsleigh team all thanks to robbie earl who is now dancing with the Jamaican team in front of the crowd, upstairs for thinking, downstairs for dancing. Thank you, Jamaica.
0: So now we're going to delve a little bit deeper into one of the games of the tournament. Uh, and Dan's second team sometimes his first dependent on what mood he's in. It's Holland versus Argentina. A brilliant quarterfinal, Dan. What went down here?
1: Oh, brilliant game. Uh, two teams, two all star lineups, uh, first and foremost. Um, two two very attacking sides as well. I uh, just want to touch on the lineups here. Uh, well, the game was played uh, on Independence Day 1998 uh, in Marseille. 55,000 fans in attendance. Both teams playing a 4 4 2. Argentina with Marcus Rowe in goal. Sensini, Ayala, Shamat, Almeida at the back, midfield of Ortega, Varane, Javier Zanetti, Diego Simeone. And a front two of Claudio Lopez and Gabriel Batigol, Batistuta. What a team. The Dutch, 4-4-2 as well. Although God knows what system they were playing at certain times during the games. Van der Soren goals. Uh, Reisiger, Stam, Frank de Boer, Arthur Newman at the back. Midfield of Philip Cocu, Wim Young, Edgar Davids and Ronald de Boer, Frank's twin brother and a front two of Dennis the Iceman camp and Patrick Clivert. Uh, a absolutely brilliant game. Kicked off... Two very early goals. Uh, Patrick Clavert gave the Dutch the lead after 12 minutes. A great move. Ronald de Boer, um, uh, Santi and a couple of the Argentina midfielders playing a lovely ball in the camp. And just as the ball's beating Camp, he readjusts his body and puts a little header in the path of Clavert, who finishes clinically past Rohr to put the Dutch 1-0 up. You'd be thinking here from then on that Dutch are going to push on. Argentina are knackered from the battle they had with England. But no, Argentina say, not today, we're still fighting for this World Cup. And they equalise in the 17th minute with Juan Verón showing us a little bit of magic with a defence splitting pass which cut Kaku, Stam and De Boer in half, played through Claudio Lopez, who not only finished well, but nutmegged Van der Sar en route to goal. 1-1 at half-time. That much of the rest of the first half was the teams trying to settle themselves down after the frantic pace of the opening 20 minutes. All right, so 1-1 at the break. Same as in the second half, a battle. Argentina battling away, getting a little bit niggly there, led by Simeone. You know, you can just, you can see it now, uh, what he was up to. Uh, the Dutch had the better of the chances and a little bit more of the possession, but didn't create anything clear-cut. The game takes a turn on 76 minutes when Arthur M- Newman cuts Simeone in half to get a second yellow of the game. Uh, nobody complained. Newman walked off knowing that he, he had done the deed and had to go. A couple of minutes left, and this is where the game completely turns. It turns in the space of 120 seconds. In the 87th minute of the match, Ariel Ortega, the new Maradona for the France 98-Argentina squad, gets the ball inside the box. He takes on Yapstam, beats him, but instead of taking a shot, he dives over Stam's leg. Much to the disgust of the Dutch players, in particularly Edwin van der Sar, who runs out of his goal and starts shouting at Ortega. While Ortega is getting to his feet, he headbutts Edwin Van Der Sar. Now Ortega is about five foot six seven. Van Der Sar, obviously well over six foot. So you'll see it. It's like an old wrestling move where he just stands up and headbutts him with the top of his head, catches Van Der Sar in the chin and knocks Edwin on his back, basically. Now maybe Edwin's a little bit theatrical as well, knowing what what could come from it. Ortega gets. A straight red. Not only does he dive, but he headbutts Van Der Sar. From the resultant free kick, Van Der Sar simply taps the ball to Frank De Boer, who carries the ball about 20 yards up the pitch. Out of the corner of his eye, he sees Dennis Bergkamp. He plays a 50-yard ball. And I'm going to say a 50-yard pass because it's deliberately played the Dennis Bergkamp and the area that he's in. It's not just a long ball with a couple of minutes to spare it's a brilliant, brilliant pass from Frank De Boer and he had that on his locker with his left foot. Camp unbelievably pulls the ball down with his first touch. With his second touch he uses his studs to poke the ball through the legs of Ayala and then with the outside of his right foot puts the ball in the top corner. Two minutes to go, the game is done Argentina are finished they are out on their feet the Dutch have won the game They see it out, and they get to the next stage, which is their semi-final, where they go on to play Brazil. An unbelievable moment. One of the goals, if not the goal of the competition, to win it. And it really was a brilliant, brilliant match to watch. And I would watch the match again at any time in terms of World Cup games. It was was brilliant. I think the Dutch deserved to go through on the day. Argentina deserved to go out after luckily beating England, as we've touched on earlier on. And the way they play acted and, and um, behaved during the game, the Dutch thoroughly deserved to go through to the semi-finals.
0: Mosh, is this Dutch team a World Cup winning Dutch team? Is it good enough to win a World Cup? Yes, Steve. Jaapstam,
2: um, De Boer, Davids, Klaiver, Burkamp. I'm sure as well too, Donna will list out the people that were sitting on the bench that day. I thought they were going to go far. Obviously, they bumped into Brazil, but the Dutch teams from about 97, 98 onwards to about 2006, they were always in the mix. They just, some tournaments, they always flattered to deceive. So I don't know if that was a wee bit of a mentality thing, a bit like England as well, but certainly this Dutch team, I thought they had definitely were within a shout of winning it.
0: So as Dan mentioned in his little coverage there, Mosh, um, the Orgies were dead on their feet, particularly uh, after the, the hard game with the Halligan against England. Holland went down to 10 men, and the Argies really didn't have anyone to be able to turn the screw, which brings me back to maybe the suggestion that someone who is in a deep lane playmaker role, I don't know, someone like Redondo, for example, could he have made the difference here, particularly with legs going?
2: Certainly, Steve. When you have an extra man on the pitch, you either use it up front or you use it midfield because your opponents, they're a man late, so you're not going to bring on another defender. To think that he wasn't there because he had long hair is preposterous. I have no sympathy for Argentina, but I do for Redondo.
0: Dan, you have mentioned to me many times about how Holland should have won this World Cup. You're a very better man. Um, I can see it. <laughs> In your eyes, after the, the semi-final defeat to Brazil, when really, I do think Holland were the better team, I'll give you that. Is this the best Holland team that's ever graced the World Cup? I know there's been previous Holland sides that have got to the final, but really, they should have got the job done here.
1: I think they should have got the job done. I think they should have won it. Um Thierry Henry has went on record and saying that they were actually relieved when Brazil won the semi-final. The French squad. They didn't want to play Holland in the final. They feared them more. Um, I think squad ways as well. Uh, you know, I just named the eleven earlier on in the Argentina team. We talk about Redondo maybe possibly coming on for Argentina, but the Dutch, from an attacking standpoint, had Van Bronckhorst on the bench, uh, Sedorf, Mark Overmars, Zenden, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank and Pierre van Hoedonk to call upon. To I think that the strongest squad. I think hitting struggled to get the balance right in midfield. Uh, They could have done with a natural winger. They used Kaku quite a bit on the left wing in the the tournament um, rather than Overmars or Zendin. And Seedorf was battling it out with Davids, whereas I probably would have played the two of them rather than Vim Young. So there was ways in which I think they could have made the team even better than hitting strongest eleven. In regards to the semi-final, it goes to penalties. The Dutch at that point... Uh, didn't have a great record of penalties tougher El saves two, one from Kaku and one from um, Ronald de Boer and they're out to they play a third place playoff then against Croatia and by the end they had checked out and, and Croatia beat them 2-1 a real missed opportunity for the Dutch considering the squad that they had and the individual players that they had on the bench as well to come on and make a difference. Maybe the balance just wasn't quite
0: what it should have been. They checked out and went on holiday just before their third-place playoff against Croatia. And luckily, Edgar Davids finally got to put those sunglasses to good use. (laughs)
1: This week's Maverick of the Week is the one and only Dennis Bergkamp, an absolute football legend and icon of our generation. Um, I've been looking forward to talking about Dennis. Uh, I thought he would have came a little bit further down the line, but when it was France 98, in the year 1998 that he had, as well as an individual footballer, um, I'm very excited to talk about Dennis and all that he achieved in his career and the honours and teams that he played in and for Um, started his career at Ajax was part of of a famous Ajax academy setup. was one of their products Um, broke in the team in 1986 as a young man and stayed there until 1993 um, and did really really well with Ajax scoring a bag full of goals and of course Ajax being the the club that they are they will ultimately um, sell their star players in order to just not so much survive but keep the club sustainable and they really pumped the, the money then back into the youth and trying to buy players from, say, South America or or, or Africa and, 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 again, seek the profits of those players. He made a big, big move in the summer of '93, moving to Inter Milan. Uh, Dennis was one of the best players in the world at this point, even early on in his career. Um, didn't quite work out for him in Italy, playing for an Inter Milan team with a completely different style of play. Um, to what he was used to at Ajax um, Last time as well The defences um, in Italy were, were very mean back then Very physical Um, You know, any time a player Like Bergkamp will get the ball He's going to be kicked off the park Or doubled or tripled up on You know, denying him space Some people say he flopped in Italy I would disagree with that He did score goals Really playing well for them In the UEFA Cup um, Winning it with... Um, into Milan in, in 1994. And I actually remember Burkamp um, as early as then. Inter Milan played Norwich City over two legs and the games were on BBC One. And I remember him scoring against Norwich and, and playing against Norwich and, and really thinking he was a re- very, very good player even, even then. In the summer of 95, he pushes for a move out of Inter and he surprisingly goes to Arsenal. Um, who hadn't had a great 94-95 uh, season Arsenal, they were at the at the stage of rebuilding um, and uh, Glenn, uh, sorry, George Graham had moved on and, and, and whatnot and Glenn Helder, a friend of, of Dennis Bergkamp from the Dutch national team, had spoke to Dennis and recommended coming to North London and there's a great story that Ian Wright tells about him rocking up to a petrol station in North London and seeing Dennis Bergkamp and just you know, going clean mad and go. are you signing for us, Dennis? And Dennis just smiling at him going, yes, I'm signing for you, Zane. <laughs> <laughs> That's an unbelievable random story. Like, And he signs for Arsenal. And in terms of Arsenal, the rest is history. Um, I talk about the year 1998 that he had. He was the player of the season in the Premier League. Arsenal won the double. He was a standout player, probably across Europe as well, along with Ronaldo and Zidane. And, um, Think back to 98, that hat-trick at Filbert Street. Uh, it's it's uh, firm in my memory. It's shown so much. He really turned that Arsenal team into a classy team, you know. Complimented Ian Wright, complimented Petit and Vieira. And he was the link between the midfield and attack and someone that Arsene Wenger trusted uh, to lead the team. And he had a fantastic season, scoring 22 goals, Um, in all competitions and leading Arsenal uh, as again as I said to to double winning glory made the World Cup all-star team in 98 as well partnering Ronaldo up front bringing the Dutch to the semi-final we've touched on that magnificent goal that he scored against Argentina as well wasn't on the pitch when the semi-final went to penalties would he have taken one would he have scored one we'll never know honours overall in his career he was a Dutch player of the year in 92 and 93 Four league titles across Ajax and Arsenal. Domestic Cups, six across Ajax and Arsenal. Two UEFA Cups, one with Ajax in 92, one with Inter in 94. A Ballon d'Or runner-up in 1992, third place in 1993. And he was placed in the English Football Hall of Fame in 2007. Retired in 2006. Sadly, in a bit of a sad way, sitting on the bench in the Park de France in the Champions League final Oh, I would have so loved from the come on in that game uh, and change the game much that uh, in the way that Henrik Larsson did for Barcelona, but circumstances went against him with Arsenal going down to ten men and he wasn't able to get on the pitch and that was Dennis's dream that uh, as well as Arsenal Wenger's, to win the Champions League with Arsenal in terms of his national career, uh, seventy nine caps for Holland. Thirty-seven goals played in Euro ninety-two, World Cup ninety-four, Euro ninety-six, world cup ninety-eight, retired after Euro two thousand. Again, just missing out on glory, um, losing on penalties in a semi-final against Italy. And once again, he wasn't on the pitch for the penalty shootout. What he has scored. Who knows? I think he would have. Moved on then, moved back to Ajax, uh, an assistant manager role, head coach role. He was part of the board with Edward van der Sar, the De Boer brothers, and Mark Overmars, really helping stabilise Ajax again and bring through players like Blind, Daily Blind and many others. Awarded uh, the ultimate honour for any any club legend when he was given the honour of having a statue of himself placed outside the Emirates Stadium and having a testimonial at the Emirates Stadium in 2007. Fans, players, still talk about Dennis to this day. He's a player they've never truly, truly replaced. Um, when you think of the likes of of Ozil, Wiltshire, Fabregas, Ramsey, they've all tried that playmaker role. They've never, ever replaced Dennis Bergkamp because there can only be one, one or two of this, this type of legendary footballer in that role, and Dennis was one of them in the 90s in the Premier League along with Canton and Zola. I love Dennis Bergkamp. I love talking about him. Uh, I love watching his goals, watching his play. He was a playmaker, a creator of goals. A cool customer. Was always sharp in his performance, on and off the pitch, sharp in training. Um, Had a great sense of humour as well, if you listen to his former teammates talk about him. Um, His nickname was The Iceman, and it will continue to be I hold him in very, very high regard. He was one of the legends of this competition as well. An honour to talk about him and a magnificent opportunity for people and our listeners to look back And after this podcast. Just YouTube Dennis Burkamp and and watch what you can about him. He was a fantastic footballer who achieved a lot in his career, um, left nothing on the pitch and deserved everything that he achieved. He is my Maverick of the Week.
0: Thank you for that fascinating biography there, Dan of Dennis Bergkamp, Dan's Maverick of the Week, and it's great to see now that Dan has made love to Janino and Dennis Camp on the pod. OK, coming <laughs> up next, it is our special World Cup 98 quiz in Balls Against the Wall.
2: Balls Against the Walls? This
1: week's Balls Against the Wall quiz is sponsored by the ball that Tom Boyd put in his own net. In the opening game of France 98 between Scotland and Brazil, leading to Scotland getting beat 2-1. If you want to see this ball, it is sitting on top of Ali McCoy's microwave and he regularly sends pictures of it to former Scotland manager Craig Brown. Oh, what a ball.
0: Yes, welcome to the special edition the FIFA World Cup 98 Balls Against the Wall Quiz. The quiz where I put Dan against Moshe who has the best football knowledge before we get started we will have to have those player buzzers and this week they are the 98 kit sponsors for the world cup countries dan what have you went with this week (laughs) kappa mush what have you went with lotto lotto well let's hope you're lucky tonight dan you are two nil up in the series so mush you really need to get one back here The prize this week is the number two single in the charts. That was the start of the tournament. I'm not sure either of you want this, but you're getting it anyway. It's Vindaloo by Fat Les. Was it number two? Oh, (laughs) I want that Uh, tune. I want that tune. Three Lions was at number one. Especially correct. So that will be whirling its way to you. You do not get a Vindaloo with it. It is just the CD single, Dan, I have to inform you. Get a slice of none. I can sort a bit of Peshwari out for you. Thank you. Okay, good stuff. As ever, lads, you are against the clock and you will know when the quiz is over when you hear this noise. Absolute load of nonsense. Absolute load of nonsense. We have been very fortunate to get our good friend, Ua Cantona, back to do the scores. He wasn't doing anything else anyway. He wasn't at France 98.
1: Eric, how are you doing? What did you get up to at the weekend?
0: I am Cantona. Okay, great stuff, Eric. So Eric's taking the scores for us. Are we ready? Yeah, ready. Question one. What bird was the official mascot for France 98? Capa. Lotto. Yes, Dan. Pigeon. No, incorrect. Mosh. Peacock. No, it wasn't a peacock either. It was a cockerel, a French cockerel. Question two. Who scored the most goals in the tournament? Lato. Yes, Mosh. Sukur. Very good. Who managed Italy at the tournament? Kappa. Yes, Dan.
1: Cesare Maldini.
0: Correct. Who scored the equalising goal for Norway against Brazil in the group stages? Kappa. Lato. Yes, Dan. Tor Andre Flo. Correct. What was the main colour of Scotland's away jersey for the tournament? Lotto Yes, mush. Yellow Correct What's, What sports brand made the kit? Lotto Yes, mush. Theodora? Incorrect Dan Umbro Correct oh. <laughs> What was the name of the Danish referee who sent off David Beckham? Of Lotto Yes, Dan <laughs> Thomas Gravison. <laughs> Incorrect. <coughs> mush. Thomason? No, it was Kim Milton. Uh, David <laughs> Danish name's that. <laughs> David Batte and which other player missed penalties against Argentina? Kappa. Yes, Dan. Paulins. Correct. Who is the only European player who played at France ninety eight to still be playing in the top flight today? Lotto. Yes, mush. Be fun. Correct Brilliant Whoa. What colour did Taribo West Day his dreadlocks for the tournament?
1: Kappa Lotto
0: Yes Dan Green Correct Who scored a brace for Brazil In the quarterfinal against Denmark? Kappa. Yes Dan Rivaldo Correct What player replaced Ronaldo When he was mysteriously missing From the World Cup final team sheet? Lotto Yes Mosh Edmondo. Correct. Name any unused substitute for France in the final who played for Arsenal. Gabba. Yes, Dan. Fiora. Incorrect. Mush. Wiltord. No, incorrect. We were looking for either Thierry Henry or Robert Pires. Absolute load of nonsense. Absolute load of nonsense. We are out of time, lads. It was another tight affair. So plays this week for good wrecked. questions. Good questions. Oh, it was another <laughs> tight one. Let's see. Let's go over to Uva Cantana for the final scores. Eric, what were the scores? Daniel 6, Connor 4. Okay, so Dan coming up with another victory. It's 3 0 in the series. Will there be a brush? Mush. You better stop the brush.
2: Send me that Vindaloo <laughs> over. You've won the battle, Dan, but you'll not win the war.
0: Oh, fight and talk from Mush there. Okay, Dan. That is three singles you've got now. You have Oops I Did it Again by Britney Spears. You have Whenever Wherever by Shakira. And now Vindaloo by Fat Lays. Your record collection. <laughs> your record collection is looking mighty tasty.
1: I'm building something special here. Uh, It's just nice to get A little bit of vindaloo There after After uh, Brittany and Shakira You know Wash it down
0: Okay we will be back With Mush The matchman For his match of the week It's a semi-final Between France And Croatia And it's coming right up After this wonderful goal By Dennis The Iceman Burkamp
2: The Dutch have the ball De Boer has it The good one With a Oh he's launched A pinpoint pass From inside his own half It's floated into The Argentinian box it's being pulled out of the sky by Burkamp. Goal! Oh my word! The Iceman has won it with a strike to sink the RGs! Oh my god, we'll be watching this goal for years to come. Dennis Burkamp, he's laying in the sun, basking in front of the Dutch army, which looks like the inside of a Jaffa cake factory. What a goal from Dennis Burkamp! Holland have done it!
0: It's match of the week! Bloody hell! Yes, welcome to Match of the Week. It's all over at the Stade de France in a big semi-final between France and Croatia. But don't worry, we've got Mush the Matchman standing by to tell us what exactly went down. Mush, what happened? Yes, Stephen. La Blues have reached
2: the final of the World Cup in their own backyard, thanks to a brace from Lillian Chiram. They will be partying in Paris Bouncing in Bordeaux, madness in Montpellier, a sea of blue delight in the Stade de France, while the light has dwindled down on the fairy tale that is Croatia. But not to worry, they'll be back. A pity first half, Zidane looked the most threatening with an effort straight at leadage. After a lovely back heel pass from that maverick, Jockey F. A hard-fought encounter, Bilic bustling, Dessier destroying. No surprise! that this KG semi was nil-nil at half-time. What the first half lacked, the second half certainly made up for it. As the game started, like a bat out of hell, and it was only one minute old when the France high line was exposed, as Charam must not have read the memo as he played golden boy Sucur onside. As the old saying goes, he was miles onside, ref. A controlled clip pass, one touch, Bang! Passed Turan from Sucur, 1-0 to the Croats. Was the upset on, as some bookmakers had labelled Croatia at 7-1? So Eastwoods told me. Replays had showed that Blanc was furious, as Lillian Turan played him onside. He was a sponsored walk away from the high line, which led up to the goal, so all blame was on Lillian's head. But, just as the game restarted, Lillian went on a gallop to redeem himself. Down the right-hand side. Boban, Croatian's captain, thought he had time to make a cup of tea. He was robbed by Chiram, who passed the ball to that maverick jockey F, who then slotted a pass into the box. And who was there, none other than Chiram to get on the end of it? No sign of a nosebleed from Big Lillian. Zero to hero in one minute. 1-1. The French side's character showed through thanks to the home support and a move by the French, which looked to have been broken down But Thierry Henry managed to find Charam outside the box who connected with a lovely crisp left foot. 2-1 to the Le Blues. Blanc was shown a red card late on for a tackle on Billage. The final whistle was met with home delight. Platini smiling in the crowd. If there ever was a corrupt smile. France threw to the dream final to meet Brazil. The dream is alive and kicking for them to win the World Cup on home soil. Croatia heartbroken. But my God, they have filled me and many's and millions at home with hope. They have done themselves proud. It's finished here, Steve.
0: France 2, Croatia 1. Great stuff, Mush the match, man. So Le Blues making it through to the final. And the big underdogs, Croatia, really making a good go of it here in the semi-final, Dan. We'll wait for Mush to come back to the studio so he can give us his little lowdown on Croatia. But while we are here... What did you make of this
1: semi-final? I thought it was a very good game. It's the type of game where, as a neutral, you want Croatia to take the lead, um, see what France are all about. Just as it looked like they were going to hang on, for all the talent and goal-scoring threat France have on the pitch, it's Lillian Jaramie pops up with a brace um, after being at fault for the Croatia opener. And really, I think uh, that highlighted the this, this spirit um, of that uh, France team, you know, where they were just all in it together, you know, and um, Chiram was not going to let his mistake cost the team a chance to get to the final in their in their own country, and um, two great goals from Chiram as well, lovely finishes.
0: Speaking of Chiram, um, I think it was sort of widely recognised going into this tournament that Cafu was probably the best right back on the planet mm. at the time. Obviously, with these two goals, Chiram's put himself on the world stage. Is he up there in your eyes, uh, as good as Cafu?
1: He is uh, definitely up there in my eyes as one of the best um, right-backs uh, to ever play the game. And he was a world-class centre-back as well. People would forget that. He partnered Cannavaro with Juventus and played for Barcelona as well. Uh, and Parma days with Cannavaro. Yeah. <laughs> um, And uh, different to Cafu, of course, um, and Zanetti and those more attacking right-backs, but an outstanding defender and just had a lot in his locker in terms of physicality, energy, fitness, athleticism, strength, and to pop up with two goals in a World Cup semi-final. He must have been absolutely delighted.
0: Great stuff, Mosh. You are back uh, from the Stade de France Obviously, if you had any bias in this tournament, it was for Croatia. Your second team, Mosh, you must have been gutted to see them go out here.
2: Definitely, when they got the goal at the start of the second half, I thought the fairy tale, the upset was on. That instant replay, maybe if Croatia could have just held out for five to ten minutes and maybe the nerves would have popped on the France side. But I think in the end up the French quality showed, and of all people to win them the game, it was Turan. And that was his two only goals he ever scored for his nation.
0: Well, oh, what a, what a
2: stat that is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what a
0: stat and what a time to get them. Yep, you're going to score two, eh? Hey? Huh? Mush, we couldn't let this episode go by without talking about your love for all things Croatian. Uh, you've done a little profile on Croatia for us. Take it away.
2: bit like Dano with the Dutch. Croatia would be my second national team fairy tale story of this World Cup 98. This was their debut World Cup after only six years of breaking away from Yugoslavia and getting independence. A very unknown quantity. They did have a couple of household names in Boban who at the time was pulling strings for SC Milan and Serie A. He was their linchpin captain. They also had Stanich and obviously up top they had Suker and Alan boxage They played their own way, which was a kind of 5-3-2 formation. They won two two group games, and then they got beat by the orgies. The last 16, they beat Romania. I don't know what was coming over them, but Romania had won their group and had a yellow kit, and they all decided to dye their hair yellow. So they looked like a big (laughs) set of ice lollies on the pitch. That didn't put the Croats off. They put them to the sword. I think the game that stands out for me is the quarterfinal clash against the Germans. The Germans may have had an age inside, but they were they were European champions at the time. They had still some massive names in their Klinsmann and that. And Croatia just wiped the floor with them and done a complete number on them. For a small country similar to the likes of Republic of Ireland and Wales and that with a small population, They've excelled, they've continued that success as well, too, where they got to the World Cup final a few years back. They play a lovely brand of football. They've created some beautiful players, and for that reason, they are my second adopted nation. They captured my my mind and my heart. And that's why I've got a soft touch for Croatia in my heart. So that's why they're my second team, Steve.
0: And just like Dan has made love to Janino. And to Bergkamp on the pod. Mosh has now made love to the entire Croatian squad. Coming up, we will discuss the Ronaldo incident for the final. He was on the team sheet. He was off the team sheet. Mondo was raging. And we discuss the excellent French winning team. Coming up after this. Hey, Brucie's time back. Nice and warm, full of suds, a scented candle, a rubber duck. In the bath, Brucey, don't give up dreams of passes to be, dreams of passes to be. Okay, Dan, I've got the story ready. Can you just check that Brucey's all ready?
1: Brucey, get into that bath. I've been spent the last half an hour running it for you. For God's sake, <laughs> you're running about there with a the towel on. Get in there, the red ox is ready, your ducky's ready, the sponge is there, and I even got your back scrubber this week. Now make sure and get nice and clean, because tomorrow you have an early flight to Switzerland, where you're meeting Sepp Blatter. Don't forget your wallet, Brucey.
0: Okay, Brucey, this week's story is a World Cup-inspired story from your friend Paul Gascoigne's book, Gaza, My Story. 28 players were taken out to La Manga, from which Hoddle would need to select his final squad of 22 for the World Cup. I was pleased, naturally, but not surprised, to be told I was on my way to Spain. Given my form for England, everyone expected me to be picked. It was all lighthearted hearted at first, a bit of training, a bit of fun... We had karaoke one evening and I got drunk, but so did several others. Dave Seaman took me to my room and tucked me in while the others carried on drinking. At least eight of them were still up at four in the morning. The next day, we were left to play golf, swim or just hang around the pool. It was then that I heard that Hoddle was calling in every player one by one at a set time to tell them who would be in the final 22. This is stupid, I thought. He's treating us like school kids. The idea of keeping us all sitting around doing nothing for several hours, waiting for an appointment, was petty. The more I thought about it, the more I thought, I'm not having this. I don't do waiting. I wasn't drunk, not at all. I might have had a couple of beers earlier that morning on the golf course, but I certainly wasn't drunk. Perhaps a bit hungover from the night before, but that was all. I was just so annoyed and irritated. I barged into a room where Ray Clements, Glenn Roder, and John Gorman, the England coaches, were sitting. I glared at all of them, daring them to tell me whether I was in, to give me some sort of clue. I could see in Glenn Roder's eyes what Hoddle had decided. There might even have been a tear there. It was clear to me that they all knew the score. I couldn't control myself any longer. I burst straight into Hoddle's room, where he was talking to Phil Neville, and I went ballistic. What the hell are you doing? You know what this means to me. Let me explain, Hoddle began. I don't want to hear your explanations. I don't care what your reasons are. You know what you're doing to me. I went over to his wardrobe and I kicked in the door. Then I overturned his table, smashing a pottery vase and sending a crashing to the floor. In the process, I managed to cut my leg. So now there was blood all over the place as well. I didn't attempt to hit Hoddle, though I would have liked to. I suppose, deep down, I still respected him as a player, if not as a manager. Perhaps I also had an inbuilt respect for the position of manager, if not for the man in it. I didn't lay a finger on him. But I was not a complete fury. It wasn't long before that he had led me to believe I would be in the final 22, telling the world that we had not seen the best of Gaza yet. But now I didn't want to hear any of his rubbish. I was hell-bent on trashing the whole room and not listening to one word he was saying. Gaza, just calm down, I'll tell you why I had to do it. Just shut up. The thing is, Gaza, your head isn't right. I got you to France. I saved your skin, your job, and now look what you're doing to me. I was about to start smashing all his windows when David Seaman and Paul Ince burst in and managed to restrain me. Then they called for the doctor, who gave me a volume tablet to quiet me down. I was taken to my room. All I wanted now was to leave La Manga at once and never see Hoddle again. Walter Smith's words echoed in my mind Hoddle will want to make a name for himself. Okay, Brucie, did you enjoy that? Great stuff. Good night, Brucie. Sleep tight
2: and don't let Gary Pallister bite.
0: So, we're now at the final. This one was between France and Brazil. At the time, Ronaldo, the Brazilian Ronaldo, had the hopes of the nation on his back. And I suppose for any younger listeners, it is sort of the same. And in fact, it's exactly the same as a Messi missing for Argentina in the final or uh, Ronaldo, Portuguese Ronaldo, missing for Portugal in the final. He was a phenomenon, and something happened to Ronaldo during that afternoon in France. Nearly 23 years later, we still don't actually know what went down. Moshe's tried to do a bit of investigating. He's got his detective hat on. There's nobody better to investigate a conspiracy. What happened to Ronaldo?
2: One of the biggest mysteries in world football is... Ronaldo and World Cup 98 The stage is set We've got France, the hosts The best team in Europe in the final versus Brazil Probably the best team in the world And the holders of the World Cup Ronaldo, the poster boy So he's went for a lay down after lunch And he's woke up And he's been surrounded by the team doctors and players Supposedly Roberto Carlos had witnessed him taking a fit Later on, it's described as a convulsion this left Ronaldo feeling tired and he just wanted a catnap. But he was told then that they would not start the final. But Big Ron wanted a second opinion. So medical exams give Ronaldo the green light as nothing abnormal had showed up on the scans. So Ronaldo goes to the Brazil manager at the stadium. I'm fine. I want to play. And at that point, he's no option, but he has to start Ronaldo. The knock-on effect From this is There's a split in the camp Between Dunga Who's on Ronaldo's side And Leonardo Who's anti-Ronaldo Just bear that in mind The squad didn't know What was going on A few players said That this was a major reason Why they Underperformed in the final And lost the final He's initially Put on the team sheet And then he's Scribbled off And Abundo's on the team sheet And then Abundo His name's stroking off And Ronaldo's back on it So Ronaldo starts the final Ronaldo and Brazil don't show up in the day And take nothing away from the brilliant French side Zidane at the the helm Reportedly a huge power behind Ronaldo starting was Nike They had just agreed a 160 million sponsorship deal With the Brazilian national team in 1996 They followed Ronaldo and Brazil around Like they were a part of the coaching team with them being the key sponsors and Ronaldo, he was massive to their merchandise and endorsements. They said Ronaldo had to play no matter what. Then there was theories too that he had a nervous breakdown. The Brazilian medic claimed he suffered from depression and had a breakdown during the tournament. He'd shown signs of mental fatigue, supposedly smashing a bike against a wall a week before the final. Roberto Carlos, who he used to share a room with, caught him sobbing. This is the one for me, the FIFA conspiracy. Brazil sold the World Cup to FIFA for 23 million dollars. The idea was that this would allow France to win the World Cup. Please, new FIFA president, Sepp Blatter, a man who I wouldn't trust to leave my bin out if I was on holiday. FIFA then promised Brazil a path to the World Cup glory in 2002 more favourable draw for them and also Brazil would get to host a World Cup in the next 10 years. Hang on a second, did those two things not happen? There's a, a mad theory regarding Ronaldo, was he poisoned? <laughs> Which I think is a crazy theory. But to this day, the full details of Ronaldo in the '98 World Cup final remain unclear and a mystery that Quincy and Taggart put together couldn't work out. The only man knows is Ronaldo. Still a player of his calibre, got another chance at the greatest stage of all in 2002 to win the World Cup. Personally for me, he's the best striker that I've ever seen. Like Leading up to the tournament, he'd bagged 34 goals in his debut season for Inter Milan.
0: Dan, I'm going to bring you in on this one here. You are known to be a fan of the dark arts. Is there dark arts at play here?
1: Uh in regards to Ronaldo, no, I don't think there is dark arts at play. Um, personally, I, I believe that Brazil as a nation uh, had put in a lot of pressure on Ronaldo and expectation. And I think he was secretly carrying a lot of injuries already. He had had knee problems since his days at PSV Eidenhoven. And I personally just think he's carried any injury into the World Cup. And as the World Cups went along... It has become more strained. And as Brazil have got closer to the final, the pressure has been heaped on him. I believe there's something with Nike. And he had to play. I also believe that he really wanted to play. And I also believe he wasn't fit to play in the final. I believe he may have suffered some sort of breakdown mentally and emotionally as well due to those pressures, as his very good friend Roberto Carlos has touched on. So that is my thoughts on it. He's such a young man at the time as well, still. Yeah. And, you know, he's running about on one leg and he's the best player in the world. Like, you know, unbelievable footballer. And that is my thoughts on it. Obviously, years later, it would come out about Platini and and that. But I, I can't take anything away from both groups of players because I don't think the Brazil or France players would have known anything about what was going on behind the scenes. Those 46 players across the two squads mind, or just trying to win a World Cup
0: There is an alternative theory here lads I know that the Brazil squad A few of the members have said Because Ronaldo wasn't fit to play That that is the reason that they lost that final There is an alternative theory That this Brazil team Just wasn't good enough to beat France Um, They're an agent team They've had to bring Dunga Basically out of retirement To have some sort of defensive shape And unit They've been very, very lucky at stages in the tournament. You know, Norway beat them in the group stages. they struggled against European opposition, even with Scotland. Does it really matter if Ronaldo's 100% fit or not here? I don't
1: think they would have beat France, no. I don't think they would have beat that France team. No, no. No way. Everything you've said there, Stephen, about their defensive and bringing Dunga to retirement. He played in China at the time, you know. Not Fra- we'll talk about France, I'm sure, in a couple of minutes, but I don't personally don't think they would have beat France. I think France had two had a great blend in their squad, and they were ready for that final. Those players, there was a lot going on in France as a country at that time, and those players had worked hard to get to that final. And I don't think they were going to be denied. Might not have kept a clean sheet, but I don't think the Brazil back four uh, would have been able to stop France either.
0: So it seems like the natural stage, lads, now to move on to the great French World Cup winning team. Dan, you had a look at what the French squad consisted of and their journey through France 98.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, It was a pleasure to look back at this team who would go on to become a a, a double-winning team in international terms. Um, And they just had a beautiful blend of youth and experience in the squad. They made a decision after failing to qualify for USA 94 they're going to have to change things up and go for youth and completely change the squad around Euro 96. They didn't bring Cantona or Ginola back in your KF and Zidane as their main men. They had strengths and depths. As I said, a blend of youth and experience. Quality all over the pitch. Um, you know, I talk about the youth there. Thierry Henry, David Trezeguet, Patrick Vieira, Corimbu. Robert Perez, all in the squad there. Lizarazu as well was still a very young man. The experienced players, and this is, these are the guys I think that get you over the line in these tournaments: Didier Deschamps, Manu Petit, Yorkev, Desailly, Blanc, Bartes, Chiram, all household names, and would go on to become, if they weren't already, world class experienced footballers and winners. Um, so that France squad was ready to win a World Cup. They were ready to do something. They had a really, really good tournament. Uh, They Three from three in the group stages. They beat South Africa and Saudi Arabia convincingly, 3-0 and 4-0. And then their final group game, they beat a very good Denmark team who gave Brazil a run for their money in the quarterfinals, 2-1. Set themselves up for their last 16 tie against a decent Paraguay team, taking them all the way to golden goal extra time. Uh, Lauren Blanc scoring a volley. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to take France through uh, in golden goal extra time and just if you remember the golden goal back then the goal scored the game's over it's you know mad yeah. scenes 11 players celebrating 11 players on their knees golden goal did create a bit of a buzz but there was also uh,
0: this sort of moment where it's like they've scored the golden goal and they're looking around going is, 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 it? is it over uh, it is oh yeah, it, it is through. it's over and, yeah, yeah.
1: And, and it's blank you know the sweeper <laughs> up from the back and right. Blanc was a Blanc was a brilliant footballer. I mean, partial do a bit of a dribble and a goal. Uh, their quarterfinal with Italy was by far their toughest test. I, I know they go 1-0 down the Croatia in the semi-final, but they're up against a serious Italy team. Cannavaro, Maldini, Nesta, Baggio, Di Biagio, Christian Vieri, Albertini, uh, nil nil after 120 minutes, probably no surprise. It could have been nil nil after
0: 240 minutes as
1: well.
0: It could have been, been <laughs> nil nil after two weeks, uh,
1: and it goes all the way to penalties with France squeezing through four three. um Razou missing a spot kick for France, but two missed penalties on the on the Italy side with Barthez denying and Albertini and Luigi Di Baggio, the unfortunate man crashing the crossbar. Um, Semi final as Ali's touched on in the match of the week beating France 2-1 and then the final itself they've taken it they've ran the final from start to finish they dominated the final Zinedine Zidane scoring two fantastic headers setting him up for the World Player of the Year award and him really you know the world knew about him but fans all over the world might not have known about him all the leading clubs and managers knew about Zidane but he, he, he officially landed on the world stage and scored two brilliant headers and then up pops Manu Petit in stoppage time uh, To finish off a, a fantastic year for him With his beautiful ponytail Winning the double for Arsenal And then Strolling down the field In stoppage time To finish off A beaten and battered And bruised Brazil team
0: To slot past Taffarel. Um I would love to know What Petit did After that World Cup In the summer After uh, winning the, the double homie. And then Winning the World Cup I hope he
1: just went on the rip for two weeks. I doubt he did. He probably went back and
0: trained. His first day back at Arsenal, training must have been the biggest come down on the planet.
1: (laughs) Well, I hope he gave it to the rest of the Arsenal squad, who who, who he might have met along the way at the World Cup and and beat. And it just, you know, to go back to France, the squad was brilliant. They suffered suspensions and everything during the tournament. That's and Blanc missing the semi-final or final, respectively. Um, And, you know, talk about the experience and be experienced winners takes you to another level I was reading about Laurent Blanc and what he says on on winning France 98 and he said it was hard work joy and victory you know the 23 players come together they work hard for each other as individuals in a team from that they get the victories that they need and then that results in the joy of winning a World Cup for their country and bringing a country back together, it just to touch on France politically at the time, there was a lot going on uh, in regards to racism. And those players, all from different backgrounds, you know, Chiram, Blanc, Deschamps, Desailly, Yorker, Zidane, Henri, Trezeguet, Perez, uh, Lizarazu, Barthez all from different backgrounds, upbringings across France. And to see them win it, they were... Really gonna go on the much bigger, bigger things down the line for their clubs and their countries, and France Nadi have galvanized them, and they're just such a brilliant team to look back on and enjoy. Zidane lift up for France
0: and the calmest man amidst the clamour is the scorer himself.
1: Jokhaya. Zidane! Lightning has struck twice. Two corners, two Zidane
0: headers. Double trouble for Brazil. So, as the summer came to a close, France '98 was over. But it was just the start for some players. Some careers took off afterwards after one good game, and some people deserved a move. Others. Probably didn't. We'll take a look back now at the top transfers after World Cup 98.
1: Thank you, Stephen. Transfers after World Cup 98. My top five are Dietmar Hamann moving from Bayern Munich to Newcastle United for £5.5 What a shrewd bit of business that was by Newcastle United. Deeney would only spend a year there, though, after being so impressive that Liverpool came knocking for him and we all know what he achieved there. Brilliant signing and a great player to have in the Premier League. In at number four is Ariel Ortega, Argentina star and who is currently at Valencia. He made the big move to the Money League at the time. Syria, where he joined Sampdoria for £8 million. A bargain for Sampdoria. He would later move on to Parma and help them win the UEFA Cup. Then at number three, it's Dutch number nine, Patrick Klaivert, who had a tough season at AC Milan, 97-98, after an impressive World Cup with Holland, Barcelona came knocking and snapped him up for the bargain price of £8.75 million. Not even £9 million, can you believe it? What a signing he turned out to be for Barcelona. He also turned down Arsenal and Manchester United that summer. In at number two, it's Chilean hitman, Marcelo Salas, who moves from River Plate to Lazio for £20 million he would help Lazio win the Scudetto and the Cup Winners' Cup, as well as defeating treble when Manchester United in the Super Cup before moving on to Juventus and helping them also win Serie A, leading the line with Del Piero and David Trezeguet. Salas was a ruthless striker and a low £20 million. he um, His club's more than got his money's worth there. And number one, the best bit of business after France 98... It's Jaap Stamm, who moves from PSV Eidenhoven to Manchester United for £10.6 million, becoming the most expensive centre-half in history. Looking back at that, what a bargain. Not only did he impress at Manchester United, but they would go on to win the treble in 1998-1999. Sir Alex Ferguson would later go on and say it was his biggest regret. Ever in his career Letting yap Stam move The Lazio in 2001 Those are my five best bits of business
0: Big Yip Yap Yapstam Coming in at number one there Thanks for that Dan yep, yep, yep. Much like Euro 96 When Karol Gaborski Got his big move After a one tournament wonder And became a massive flop Mush You had a look at some other floppies for us Who flopped After the World Cup
2: Yes Stephen At number five is Christian Daly. The Scottish international left relegated Derby to join Blackburn Rovers for £7 million. What a season as he must have brought the blight to Blackburn as they then got relegated and he suffered two relegations back to back. He couldn't get a settled position or find any sort of form and only staggered 17 appearances. Number four, Terry Henry. 11.25 11.25 million from Monaco to Juventus, a wide forward at the time and a young man. Juventus played him as the winger and even as a wing back. He struggled to find form at the Italian Giants and only got 16 appearances and three goals in a very ineffective first season. But Arsene Wenger, a man who couldn't zip up his coat, saved Henri by signing him for Arsenal. Hey Bobby, what's French for Baba Boom? Number three. Robert Jarnet from Real Betis to Real Madrid via Coventry. Now this one is, this one's a bit mixed up. Jarnet was the fullback for the 32-0 Croatia side. A few teams were sniffing around, but none other than Coventry manager, Wee Gordon Strachan purchased him for 2.6 million. No sooner had he arrived at Coventry, he had barely time to unpack his leather suitcase and find a barber to get his short back inside. As a week later, Real Madrid champions rung Rhys Stracken, and said, How much do you want for him? And they accepted a £3.4 million deal. Strachan was laughing as he dodged a bullet and made a profit on a player who ended up flopping at Madrid. Number two, Stefan Gouron from Auxerre to Newcastle, World Cup winner. The pointless answer in a quiz: If you were to name players in the France-winning World Cup squad, after a cracking season at Auxerre where he banged in loads of goals and made the France team rather than Nicolas and Nelka, he was signed by the Geordies. He now sells swimming pools for a living. And number one, Denilson to Rail Batis from Sao Paulo for. £21 million. At the time, this is a lot of money for a young winger. Only two goals in his first season at Real Betis as he struggled to hold down a regular starting berth and he got found out by Spanish teams as they doubled up on him. The following season, you think it would get much better for him? No, Real Betis were relegated and Sao Paulo. Have you got a receipt? Because we want our money back. That concludes my top five worst bits of business, Steve.
0: Some serious flops in there, much. Thank you very much for that. So now it's time to pick our next player in our Simpsons lookalike 11. Already we have a very nice little midfield of Gilles Grimondi and David Silva, otherwise known as Jacques. The Bubbler And Dr Nick Riviera This week It's Simpsons fan Mush the Matchman To have his pick Mush Who have you got for us And where are they Slotting into this 11?
2: Yes Stephen My pick is The Yellow Weasel You're probably asking Who the hell is The Yellow Weasel Well He was one of Nelson Monse's cronies Along with the Black Weasel In season one Of the Simpsons now, they weren't brothers, the Weasels But Yellow Weasel, he was a bully He was a tough kid Full of aggression Very similar to the player This player was a bully on the pitch Full of tenacity Had a sour face on him He had a great career Played for Atletico Madrid and Inter Milan My luck alike of the week Is none other than Diego Simeone <laughs>
0: He is an absolute dead ringer for the yellow weasel, as much says if you don't know who the yellow weasel is, Dan will pop it up on the old Twitter page. I mean, the hairdo is just one hundred percent Diego Simeone's hairdo, is it not, Dan?
1: It definitely is. He reminds you of Simeone too, the scowls of him there, but uh, I cracking, <laughs> cracking look and he goes straight into the middle of the park in our in our team.
0: It's a very defensive look inside. Uh, now, with Simeone and Grimondi in there. Dan, what are you thinking? 424? Uh, four, four?
1: It's looking that way, Stephen, yeah. <laughs> gong ho.
0: <laughs> Great stuff. So, going straight into the team, it's the yellow weasel, otherwise known as Diego Simeone. Okay, that's it for the pod this week, folks. We hope you've enjoyed our FIFA World Cup 98 special. Next week, we will be back to normal reviewing a week from football history. We'll review some games, we'll have some analysis, some insights. Our balls against the wall quiz will be back. Dan will be picking his favourite transfers. Mush will have another madman of the week. Brucey will still be splashing about in his bath. All that, and it's back to Dan for his Simpsons lookalike 11 pick. So playing us out this week is a brilliant theme song from the 1998 World Cup Unfortunately, for rights reasons, we can only play you a small clip. But I do encourage you to go and download it from wherever you download music. This is Jamaica United Rise Up, the Reggae Boys theme song for the nineteen ninety eight World Cup, featuring Toots Hibbert, Diana King, Ziggy Marley, and Maxi Priest. So it's good night from me, and it's good night from Dan. Say good night, Dan. Good night, Dan. And it's good night from Mush the Matchman. Say good night, Mush. Good night, Marsh. See you next week. Won't you rise up, Jamaica? stand up, Jamaicans, with love and justice for all? Let us build our nation from the foundations of love, of love, I say. Rise up, Jamaicans, stand up and take a stand. We are all God's
1: people,
0: (laughs) we should live as one.